I'm Daniel Berlant in the Cal Fire Information with the Fire Situation Report for Thursday, August 27, 2020. Firefighters overnight continue to make good progress on a number of fronts. In fact, containment numbers on almost all of the fires are starting to increase. Now, overnight, we did see some more lightning, not much, but about two dozen additional lightning strikes occurred in Northern California. The good news here, though, no new lightning strike fires. However, firefighters will continue to monitor should those strikes potentially smolder and turn into a fire uh, in the next couple days. Now, yesterday, fire crews were still busy across the state. 46 new fires did ignite up and down the state. The good news, though, all of those have been contained. Now we'll switch over to our statewide fire map where you can still see the nearly two dozen major wildfires that firefighters are continuing to make progress on. Let's talk about some of those fires and I'll start kind of in the northern portion of the state. First, uh, this is the August complex uh, being fought by the Mendocino National uh, Forest. But if we scroll just over uh, to the east a little bit into the Chico Butte County areas, this is the Butte Tehama complex. Uh, this fire has burned over uh, just about 55,000 acres. As of last night, it was 30% contained. Uh, scrolling down into the Bay Area, let's start in the North Bay where we have the LNU Lightning Complex. Uh, this fire has burned over 368,000 acres. Uh, crews are making real good headway on this fire, 33% contained. However, as we make good progress and as containment is made, there are still other areas where the fire has been active. Specifically, if we scroll up here kind of on the eastern uh, edge of the fire, here's Winters going up Highway 16. Uh, that's where, uh, here's Highway 16. Uh, in Rumsey Canyon, we've continued to see some activity uh, in this area. In fact, additional evacuations were called yesterday, both in Yolo and Calusa County. Those evacuation, both orders and warnings. So this eastern edge of the Hennessy Fire uh, continues uh, to be an area where we are seeing some activity, as well as the northern edge up into Lake County. So uh, still activity on the LNU Lightning Complex. Over in the East Bay, the SCU Lightning Complex has also grown to just over 368,000 acres, 35% uh, contained as of this morning. So continuing to see our containment numbers there grow. Over in the Santa Cruz Mountains, the CZU Lightning Complex has burned over 81,000 acres today. It is 21% contained. And then uh, if we scroll down into Monterey counties, here we are just south of Salinas. Here we have the river fire uh, that has burned uh, 48,000 acres. It is 58% contained. And just to the south of it is the Carmel fire, a little smaller, uh, 6,700 acres. 60% contained. So really making good progress down here. And these are just a couple highlights of the fires that are burning right now in California. You, of course, can uh, visit this interactive map on your own at our website, fire.ca.gov. But today we have over uh, 15,600 firefighters who are on the front lines battling these fires. Over 2,400 fire agents from fire departments from every corner of the state. We've been continue to see additional resources from other states. In fact, as of today, 96 fire engines have been sent from other western states to assist us. As I mentioned yesterday, the National Guard continues to be activated both with helicopters and with troops on the ground helping to build containment efforts. So we are making real good uh, progress. A couple other statistics just to throw out of just how enormous this firefight has been. Our air tankers and our helicopters have uh, dropped a significant amount of retardant and water. In fact, our air tankers uh, during this siege have dropped over 3.35 
million gallons of fire retardant. Our helicopters have dropped over 4.69 million gallons of water, just a significant amount, just to show you how big this fight has been. So let's talk a little bit about the weather and what we can expect uh, through uh, today and into tomorrow. Today we are going to see high temperatures, 93 degrees in Sacramento, 98 in Redding, uh, 79 Los Angeles, 94 in San Diego. So relatively seasonable for this time of year. Uh, the next couple days we're going to continue to see uh, not too bad weather. So the conditions will continue to be favorable over the next several days. Here's our wind gusts for today. You can see 10 to 20 miles an hour in many areas. So the gusts, uh, you know, uh, could be there and that, uh, you know, may hamper efforts, uh, but not not too significant and over the next couple days we are not expecting any significant wind so we do expect firefighters to continue to make great progress on a number of fronts however even though containment efforts are going up and even though the weather has been cooperating we cannot become complacent so firefighters are continuing to keep their heads focused on aggressively attacking these fires and building containment these fires have been record-breaking, not only in just the sheer number of acres uh, burned, but many of them now becoming uh, on our top 20 largest wildfire list in California. In fact, the LNU Lightning Complex today is the second largest wildfire within our state's recorded history. The SCU Lightning Complex is now the third. Every day, those fires continue to uh, compete for the number two spot. Today, LNU Lightning Complex, number two, uh, and the SCU Lightning Complex, number three. Also, the August Complex uh, up on the Mendocino National Forest uh, is on the record book as well as number 12. So three of these fires now in the record books. So let's talk about what you need to do to be prepared. As we're making good progress on fires, hopefully it is a reminder to you to ensure that you and your family are ready should a wildfire strike in your area. With, uh, as I mentioned yesterday, 46 new fires, we are still having a high level of activity across the state. So it is so important that you have a go bag. You can see all the different elements of items you need to ensure that you have. That could include, obviously, your face mask, uh, three-day supply of non-perishable food, uh, in, uh, make sure you've marked what is the evacuation route and make sure you have two of them, not just one from your home. Make sure you have two. Include uh, any prescriptions that you have, any medications, uh, eyewear, hand sanitizer, masks. Again, everything that you need to be uh, COVID uh, preparations, have that ready. Water, money, credit cards, important documents, your birth certificates, uh, your mortgage information, all that stuff. Make sure you put all together in a go bag. That way, when you are evacuated, you can go within minutes. You grab that bag and you are out. Uh, for this full list of items on uh, information on how to evacuate, you can get all this from our website, readyforwildfire.org, uh, and customize the list for your family. I want to end today just making a, a quick mention of our partners that are working tirelessly side by side with us. Obviously, we talk a lot about the firefighters who are battling the fire, but our law enforcement partners, the California Highway Patrol, the County Sheriff's Department, the police departments, who are all ensuring that uh, residents are evacuated quickly, safely, and to ensure that roadblocks and other areas are closed off so our firefighters continue uh, to be able to work safely. It's the officers and the deputies that make sure that that happens. So today, we take an opportunity to thank our law enforcement partners for their help in these wildfires. As always, please 
For the latest information on the incidents, visit us at fire.ca.gov. Follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. That's the latest on the fire situation here in California. I'm Daniel Berlant. Have a fire safe day. Okay. WineCellarMedia.FeatherMuckingCom. <clears throat> Make sure I'm not uh, yelling directly into my microphone as I did when I was just yelling about the myth of cancel culture. The myth. I still stand by that. It's not real. It is false. It is fake. It is a myth. And let's go ahead and get into what we get into. In Father Teresa's Wine Cellar, we believe all oppression is intersectional. And this means our analysis of current events frequently includes discussion of difficult and explicit content. Any combination of the following topics could be included in our show. Murder, rape, war, climate change, racism, sexism, violence, sexual violence, homophobic violence, heterocentrism, discrimination and abuse against individuals of nonconformist sexuality, domestic violence, child abuse, child rape, child neglect, elderly abuse, verbal abuse, police brutality, microaggressions, ableism, cyberbullying, genital mutilation, ideological extremism, and people just being total fucking assholes. All right. Yes. And uh, Phoenix Kaliter is uh, retweeting the live program. With the, Can you retweet it with a number? Uh, I can. You, re- you ready? No. Not ready. All right. Phoenix Kaliter is almost ready to retweet it with the number. It is coming up soon. It is coming up fast. Holy shit. She's about to do it. And the number is? 347-857-3972. All right. Three nine three seven. Yes. I put four seven. Woo! A little whoopsie daisy gets you going. Okay, if you want to call in, we are reading. Yes. Thomas Frank, the people know a brief history of anti-populism. All right. And we have been having a grand old time reading this. And if you want to look at the Facebook Live, it is coming directly from my William J. Jackson account on Facebook. And um, it's not our faces on the live because that would be horrible to just watch us listen to a book. (coughs) So we actually, I I am screen sharing a compilation of Cats Being Cats from the YouTubes. All right, so you can just see that. And uh, it's always going to be Cats. And if something else auto plays after it, whatever. But I pick Cats first. I have a cat bias. (laughs) <laughs> Bing bang blam. Dig it. I thought you could. I think you would. All right, Miss Ma'am, and you are about to tweet the fuck out of that shit. I am. All right, and we are going to pick up smooth the fuck where we left off with maybe a little running start. And remember, this is an eight hour audio book. We are 58 <laughs> minutes in. So, uh, yeah. Wow. Yes, I mean, what? This is, uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're just banging it out. Yeah, like well, yeah, I think we will get done before we actually go to uh, Michigan. Yeah. Whoops. All right, and here comes that Thomas Frank audio, and the book is read by Thomas Frank himself, so that that's why the voice sounds so dorky and not really like like some professional reading. I'm not trying to diss the Frankster. Maybe I need to reload that thing. Yeah, what the hell? Start playing. No? 
Don't play. Alright. What the hell? Alright, let me uh, bring it back directly from my library. There we are. As the recession deepened, the Democratic Party began to turn against its sitting president, the banker coddling Grover Cleveland. When the Democrats gathered for their convention in Chicago in the summer of 1896, pandemonium broke loose. Not only did the party denounce its own president, but it declared its intention to toss the gold standard itself overboard. Then they nominated for the presidency the virtually unknown William Jennings Bryan, a 36-year-old free silver advocate from Nebraska who talked as much like a populist as did anyone from the Cornhusker state. Eastern <coughs> respectability reeled as it beheld one of the country's two traditional parties apparently captured by radicalism. The actual radicals in the People's Party, meanwhile, reckoned with the very different problem of seeing a powerful rival swipe the idea upon which they had strategically placed all their hopes. Meeting right after the shocking Democratic Convention, the populists felt that they had little choice but to throw in their lot with Bryan. Fusion had been a successful strategy for the party at the state level, and now populist leaders hoped to follow it into the executive branch in Washington. The gamble was a painful one for certain populists, however. Not only did it mean selling out their far-reaching reform program in favor of one issue, but many among the party's southern and black contingents had risked their lives to make a stand against the Democratic Party. For them to come crawling back because their colleagues wanted to endorse Bryan was a humiliating prospect. Still, the wager was done. The crusade was launched. It was free silver against the gold standard, with populists and Democrats standing more or less united to defeat the plutocracy. When Bryan proceeded to lose to Republican William McKinley, populism fell mortally wounded. The People's Party struggled on for a few more years, but after the catastrophe of the 1896 election, its fate was sealed. The party immediately broke into squabbling factions. Its conventions, scheduled for large auditoriums, were attended by embarrassingly small crowds. At length, the economy recovered, even for farmers. Agricultural prices rose, and thanks to various technological advances, the global production of gold increased enormously, finally erasing the problem of deflation. Meanwhile, the two big parties slowly came around to the populist innovations. Populist voters gradually made their way back to their previous partisan homes, while a chunk of the leadership joined the Socialist Party. By the first few years of the 20th century, the third party's grievances and its evangelical style seemed dated and easy to forget. Populism's list of demands, however, did not perish. It lived on and met with success. The direct election of U.S. Senators, for example, was secured through the 17th Amendment to the Constitution in 1913. Railroads were regulated and so was the telephone system. Other monopolies were broken up. Women got the vote. Rich people got the income tax. Beginning in the 1910s, farmers got a whole host of programs designed to protect them from speculators and middlemen and the ups and downs of the market. 
putting unemployed people to work on infrastructure eventually became a standard element of economic policy. In monetary policy, populism also won in the end. The country finally came off the gold standard in 1933. Ultimately, the United States moved to adopt the most radical populist demand of them all, a managed or fiat currency, although we didn't do it fully until 1971, some 80 years after populism first came thundering over the prairies. These items make up the populist contribution, a phrase that a long-ago historian used to describe this list of belated triumphs. For scholars of that generation, populism was a chapter in the story of democracy's advance, part of a long-running drama in which the American people faced off against aristocratic financial interests. The movement aimed to make of America a land of democratic equality and opportunity, wrote historian Vernon Parrington in 1930, to make government in America serve man rather than property. Populism showed that egalitarian aspirations lived and were capable of prevailing even in the country's most corrupt, most plutocratic period. The ideology of populism was not a difficult thing for historians in 1930 to identify. Its signature ideas, equality, hostility to privilege, anti-monopoly, were part of a radical 19th century tradition that could be traced to Thomas Paine and Thomas Jefferson. One reason that historians knew this was because the populists said so all the time. The Jefferson the Pops admired is easy to pinpoint. It was the Jefferson who declared that banks were more dangerous than standing armies, who believed that the natural divide between political factions fell between aristocrats and Democrats, who once urged a friend not to be intimidated by the croakings of wealth against the ascendancy of the people. Understood in this way, populism is not only a radical tradition, it is our radical tradition, a homegrown left that spoke our American vernacular and worshipped at the shrines of Jefferson and Paine rather than Marx. We may have lost sight of the specific demands of the populist's Omaha platform, but the populist instinct stays with us. It is close to who we are as a people. We may gag at political correctness, but populism endures. Populism is what ensures that, even though we bridle against the latest crazy radical doings on campus, we also hate snobs and privilege with the core of our collective democratic being. Over the last century, observers called countless movements and politicians populist because they were reminiscent in some way of the original. The People's Party, however, was one of very few movements to apply that word to itself, to proudly call itself populist. back on i'm gonna pause right there just for that particular moment i i i think i, I like i was in my head i was like i should have paused it like 30 seconds before uh -huh. when he had a dramatic pause himself <laughs> yes. but that shit where he said the people's party um actually called themselves that mm -hmm. which that's a ill thing like speaking to a word slight yes say the words as we always say on this program say the word sadist 
We're reading an article. Say the word rape. If you just say the word, people that are looking for that thing will resonate with it. Yeah. Like, that's why I'm pretty sure some folks gravitate to the program because we literally just put the words transphobic attack in the title of an episode. Yeah. Right? We put banking for sex workers in the title, right? And then we put it in the tag and we put it in the description so folks that are looking for that can find it, right? There's probably folks that were like, huh, where the hell are the gosh darn populists? Right in that time of yore, and like, and then they see a, a flyer that says, "Hey, we're populist," and they're like, "Well, fuck, you're the folks I was looking for." <laughs> right, 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 and you know, like, like the whole time, um, Republicans are yelling at the the Democrats are a bunch of socialists and communists and all that business. Mm-hmm. And um, four oh nine on the phone line. I'm just gonna make your microphone hot while we're um in between segments here on the book, and um, and they're yelling that at the Democrats. Obama's a socialist and all that business. Yeah. And it's like, they're saying that, but I see how he's acting and I don't really know. But then I hear somebody say, hey, this old Jewish guy from Brooklyn is a democratic socialist. Okay, I've never heard of that. I'll look it up. But I like that that word is involved. Let me see what that motherfucker's doing. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, you don't scare me with climate change, right? Because climate change... To a lot of our understanding is some shit that um, I can't pinpoint the specific person right now, but came from the right wing to try to say something other than global warming. Right. Right. But um, again, if you go back to videos from the 80s, again, you type in Bernie Sanders in 1980s something and there's a video of him being right before your favorite politician was wrong. Yeah. And there's a video of him uh, talking to a group of third graders eight-year-olds i'm getting some feedback there i think someone might have a speaker on and um but talking to a group of eight-year-olds and says climate change right so it's like that's that's not really new language but like now he said that and and think about those were eight you know eight-year-olds in the late 80s yeah that's he was literally talking to his base. He did. I don't think he knew it. <laughs> he did not know it yet. He did not. Yeah. So those, any kids that he talked to, and he did that shit a lot. He talked to high school kids. You yeah. can find videos of him everywhere trying to spit that game. Yeah. And uh, they probably grew up and said, "Oh fuck, we remember that bastard." And he's still talking the same shit. Mm-hmm. I'm fucking voting for him in the primary. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, uh, like why would somebody click on Phoenix Kalita shit? Because like, what would they already be looking for and find you? Oh, they're probably already looking for something that affirms sex workers and sex worker rights. And yeah. how sex worker rights are tied to, um, you know, the fight for disability rights and labor rights and how it's sex worker rights are involved with, um, you know, and uh, combating racism and classism and all those things. Yeah. Yeah. Or I'm sure there's black people that like to listen to black radio or like to tune into black YouTube that probably think. What's the deal with this Tariq Nasheed guy? I can't quite put my finger on it, but something's wrong with this dude. And they probably even type in a search. Like, to, they probably search Tariq Nasheed wrong. And they probably find my shit. And it's like, now you can actually get someone playing the clips and breaking down the bits and pieces on his descent into bootlickerism. Yes. And uh, 409 on the phone line. Your microphone's hot. Did you have anything to say about this uh, book segment or topic? How you know who is who be who? Because I know that that is the area code for where Theo stay at. That could be anybody. <laughs> oh, that is. Is it, is it Theo, though? That is you, right? Yeah. See? <laughs> I know what I'm talking about. 
All right, and you're rather quiet. Are you? You're, you're, are you? I think you had a you had a hurricane come down on you. Uh, it, it, but I think there was bad news. Bad pictures came up. Um, I think Theo is okay, and their property is okay. But like around the surrounding areas are fucked up. Oh shit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to the east of us. To the east to of the you. East of us, everything's fucked. Yeah, to the east of us, everything's fucked up. I say, I want to say, like, a, you can drive about forty-five minutes and you'll start seeing destruction. Said, so drive about forty-five minutes and what happens? You, you, you can start seeing destruction. Okay, drive about forty-five minutes and you start seeing destruction. Your uh, your audio is super low, but uh, we're gonna keep you on. Oh. I hope I, I hope you stay tuned in, and we're we're gonna be uh, kicking the book back up. And uh, this is uh, Thomas Frank, and the name of the book is "The People Know a Brief History of uh, of Anti Populism." So let's go ahead, and we're gonna mute all microphones so everybody can chill. You know, eat your food. You don't gotta worry about your crunching getting in there. I know Phoenix Collider has a chunky ass sandwich there. Uh, you know, so we're all gonna chill, listen to the book, and in about ten to fifteen minutes, we'll pause it and riff about it again. And that's the punk ass bookie, b- book jockeys wine cellar book club. All right, let's. Uh oh, I already muted my mic. Bring that window back up. Where's that, Thomas Frank? I have so many windows open. All right, here we go. For decades after its brief flowering, it remained virtually the only example of the species, the number one definition of the word in English language dictionaries. It is therefore surprising that modern day thinkers who assail what they call populism only rarely bother to consider the movement that invented the word. Of the contemporary anti-populists I describe in this book, almost every single one is employed by an American news outlet, university, or think tank, and yet they attach the term far more frequently to the deeds of the Le Pen family in France, or the rhetoric of South American politicians than to the group that revolutionized U.S. politics in the 1890s. Some of these experts seem unaware that the People's Party existed. Others mention it only casually and in passing. Still, in their characterization of populism as a threat to democracy, an ism as insidious in its own way as communism used to be, these present-day thinkers are doing far more than calling into question various racist demagogues. They are also attacking the American radical tradition. That is ultimately what's in the crosshairs when such commentators insist that populism is a threat to liberal democracy, when they announce that populism is almost inherently anti-democratic, when they declare that all people of goodwill must come together to defend liberal democracy from the populist threat. These are strong, urgent statements, obviously intended to frighten us away from a particular set of views. Millions of foundation dollars have been invested to put scary pronouncements like these before the public. Media outlets have incorporated them into the thought feeds of the world. They're everywhere now. Your daily newspaper, if your town still has one, almost certainly throws the word populist at racist demagogues and pro-labor liberals alike. When we fact-check the claims of this anti-populist onslaught, however, we find that they miss the reality 
of the original populist movement as well as the many subsequent expressions of the populist credo. Again and again, upon investigation, the hateful tendencies that we are told make up this frightful worldview are either absent from genuine populism or are the opposite of what it stood and stands for, or else, more accurately, describe the people who hated populism and who have opposed it since back in the 1890s. I do not point all this out merely as a historical corrective. That's just the starting point. This recording has larger ambitions. As we shall see, anti-populism always serves as a tool for justifying unaccountable power. As such, it is a doctrine worth exploring in its own right. But the immediate and urgent task before us is to rescue from the anti-populists the one radical tradition that has a chance of undoing the right-wing turn. The first item in the Bill of Charges Against Populism is that it is nostalgic or backward-looking in a way that is both futile and unhealthy. Among the many public figures who have seconded this familiar accusation is none other than the President of the United States, Barack Obama, who in 2016 criticized unnamed politicians for having, quote, embraced a crude populism that promises a return to a past that is not possible to restore, unquote. What he was taking aim at was obviously Trump's slogan, Make America Great Again, which implied that the country's best days lay in the past. Obama's understanding of populism as a politics of pointless pining for bygone glories is unremarkable. But a more accurate noun for this sentiment would be conservatism, the political philosophy that defends traditional ways. The agrarian radicals of the late 19th century did no such thing. Populism called for radical reforms that would have put this country on an entirely different trajectory from the finance capital road we followed. Indeed, the populace believed in progress and modernity as emphatically as did any big city architect or engineer of their day. Their newspapers and magazines loved to publicize scientific advances in farming techniques. One of their favorites was a paper called The Progressive Farmer. For all their gloom about the plutocratic 1890s, the populists' rhetoric could be surprisingly optimistic about the potential of ordinary people and the society they thought they were building. This did not mean, however, that the Pops simply welcomed whatever happened as an improvement on what had happened the day before. It was not a step forward to pack the nation's wealth into the bank accounts of a handful of people who contributed nothing. Real progress meant economic democracy as well as technological innovation. Anti-populism is similarly misleading on the crucial matter of international trade. In a 2017 paper about the populist backlash of the late 19th century, the Hoover Institution historian Niall Ferguson tells us flatly that hostility to free trade has always been one of the signature issues that define populism, because populism, as he puts it, is always a, quote, backlash against globalization. Lots of other scholars say the same thing. William Galston of the Brookings Institution, for example, tells us that populism has always been, quote, protectionist in the broad sense of the term, that all forms of populism stand, quote, against foreign goods 
foreign immigrants, and foreign ideas. When applied to Gilded Age America, these arguments are almost entirely upside down. If you look up where the parties stood on the then-important issue of tariffs, you find that the great champions of protectionism were, in fact, big business and the Republicans. The man responsible for crushing populism first rose to fame as the author of the McKinley Tariff, the very definition of a backlash against free trade. It was William Jennings Bryan's Democrats who were the true believing free traders of the period. It's also worth remembering that agrarian organizations in America have nearly always supported free trade for the simple reason that American farmers export huge amounts of food and because many of the things that farmers consume can be purchased more cheaply overseas. And sure enough, among the various manifestos of the Farmers Alliance is found the following, quote, we further demand a removal of the existing heavy tariff tax from the necessities of life that the poor of our land must have. Indeed, the populists were so passionate about encouraging trade that a number of their legislators enlisted in a scheme to build a publicly owned railroad running from the Great Plains to the Texas Gulf Coast, which would theoretically allow farmers to export directly to the world without having to pay the high freight rates imposed by private railways. That's how actual populists regarded protectionism, in precisely the opposite way from what modern scholars assure us populism always does. Contemporary experts further inform us that populists feel an instinctual antagonism to government agencies, particularly of the sort that are insulated from politics. While this is certainly true of modern-day conservative Republicans who despise regulation of business, and of Brexit supporters in the United Kingdom who fear the unaccountable bureaucracy of the European Union, it is almost precisely the opposite of the viewpoint of American populists. In point of fact, the Pops came out of the reform tradition that invented the modern independent regulatory agency. And historians generally acknowledge that the People's Party was the first to call for large-scale government intervention in the economy, by which I mean intervention on behalf of ordinary people, not corporations. Their 1892 Omaha platform spelled it out clearly. We believe that the powers of government, in other words, of the people, should be expanded as rapidly and as far as the good sense of an intelligent people and the teachings of experience shall justify to the end that oppression, injustice, and poverty shall eventually cease in the land. The populists wanted the government to own and operate the nation's railroads, to manage the currency, to take possession of land owned by speculators, to set up postal savings banks, and a dizzying list of other interventions. Pause point. All right. Because, again, just what he, what he said uh, at, the, at the end of it there kind of resonated with me. And this is one where... I'm not a reasonable leftist, okay? <laughs> okay? I think that landlords should just be abolished full stop in one fell swoop. If you don't live there, you don't own it. Ends right there in the moment, and it's taken over. Well, now you want, I know, as soon as you say the word government, people are like, the, the, you mean that corrupt government? I mean, for now, yeah, 
<laughs> like that same corrupt government gets me my gets the social security check here on time most yeah. of the time most of the time <laughs> and it fucking um and it gets my tax return pretty damn on time i typically don't go over 10 days on my tax return literally every year of my adulthood mm-hmm. so yeah turn it all over fuck that shit take it away from these goddamn leeches especially with this shit going on with um with these duplex conversions i don't know if folks know about this but land leeches are being coached by these fucking slick mouth youtubers and shit to uh to basically buy up first they go to like i don't know if they go to their city council but they definitely go and check their um zoning regulations and then they can just basically buy some drywall, cut open some doors, cut open some doorways, yep. and slap some shit up and call a regular house that would have been, you know, a nice five bedroom house that someone could move into mm-hmm. and uh, rent for like, well, we were renting um almost like 1300 square feet in Florida yeah. for uh for 1200 a month. Mm-hmm. But now some land leech will probably swoop in and add another door to the upstairs, yep. slap another staircase on the side, and then rent that for one thousand one hundred, and then keep renting the downstairs. <laughs> Fuck it, slap that up to one thousand four hundred. Yep. Hey, they put a new countertop in. It's one thousand four hundred a month now. It's some super greedy capitalist what was, shit. Uh, what was the name of that coup album? Kill my landlord. The story of Galveston. Yep. Ooh, a little louder. I say that's the story of Galveston. Oh, they're doing they that? Do. They come in from all kinds of places. They uh, buy up everything. They fix up. And either they rent it out for a month before, like, three times of what it's worth. Or uh, they turn it into vacation homes. The little Airbnbs. Oh, okay. I got three Airbnbs on my block. On my block, three of them. Damn. I don't know. They're, uh, all, by, they're, all, they're all owned by people that's not in, uh, they don't live in Texas. I'm looking at the decibels and you're super low. Are you are you holding your phone up the regular way, the old school way? Yes, sir. Hmm. Yes. I don't know why it's so low, but just in case folks aren't hearing, um, Theo, the um, in in Galveston, Texas, he said on his block there's like three Airbnbs and these leeches are just buying up shit. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, th- again, back to Emperor Williams says, if you don't live on it, you don't own it. Fuck you, all right? <laughs> Fuck these fucking leeches. Like, that's the thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm not the reasonable leftist. I'm not here to debate. I'm not here to discuss. We are over 500 years into this fucking white supremacist capitalism and this fucking land leech and shit. And I could have swore when the, before these motherfuckers left Europe, their argument was they wanted a free market economy. Mm-hmm. And folks tend to not know what that means. When they think free market, they're just like, that means I, I can freely walk into a store and buy something at the market. <laughs> no, no, it actually meant a market free of landlords. That was part of the American ideal. Yeah. Bullshit. The anything that said to be the American ideal was was they they called themselves on it as soon as they said it, right? Like I go back to I could forget which comedian said it, but they were like, uh, you think the founding fathers were like, uh, all men are created equal? <laughs> now get me some hot coffee, boy. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, bullshit. So let's get to that idea of an actual free market and get rid of these goddamn leeches and no reparations. They've been collecting someone else's check long enough. They got paid. If anything, there should be a goddamn payback. How about you debt the land leeches to the people that paid them, uh, let's say... 70% of what the people paid over the years. Mm-hmm. Now, not in one fell swoop. We'll set you up on a payment plan. Yep. Okay? Make it fair for you. Right? One, 150 a month? Yeah. Till you pay, and you can pay it off early if you want to. I'm sure you got it. Uh-huh. <laughs> all right? And, and that's, all right? So you want Emperor William? You're going to get dead rapists and no more landlords. That's my campaign. I think that's a pretty good fucking campaign. All right? And, I, and I'll and i punch Aaron yeah, fuck... I, what up? I agree. I agree. Yep. <laughs> and Theo Loco agree. agrees. And Phoenix Cliff, you had something to say about the, 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 the whoop-de-whoop? Oh, yeah. Just, I, I, it's so interesting to me how this keeps happening. And then, you know, at the same time, like with all these uprisings going on, people are like, but we have to protect the property because it's, you know, property matters and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, y'all don't give a shit when landlords be fucking up these. And these are some old ass houses, right? Victorian shits, like from the early 1900s, 1920s, 1930s, some of them late 1800s. Like, y'all don't care when landlords be making this shit into duplexes, but you want me to get mad because protesters fucked up a Target. Are you serious right now? (laughs) Yeah, when you think about these houses are actually older than the Confederate statues that they don't want torn down. (laughs) Dead up. Like, uh, that's some real shit. These houses are older than those old participation trophies, which is what they are. Mm -hmm. All right? Wine Cellar Media, Book Club. Oh, and the cat that's on the screen right now looks like Light Skin Killmonger. That's fun. And behaves like him, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then there's regular Killmonger that comes up <laughs> on the screen. If folks are looking at the Facebook Live, again, we just have a cat videos on. That's what we do. That's how we does. Because who wants to watch us listen to a book? I don't think you do. And shout out to the homie Phoebe Loco who said, um, I'm in a state and just mm-hmm. got here and don't know what's happening. But we love this. Yay! Don't worry, I'll be in a state too myself in due time. Uh, <laughs> contacted the my distribution agent <laughs> so that I can up my inventory. <laughs> All right, uh, and remember, folks, uh, patreon.com slash fund, paypal.me slash phoenixandwilliam. Let's get back to Thomas Frank, the people know a brief history of anti-populism. The third party's hopes for government assistance were one of the things that made populism seem so sick and twisted to men of respectability at the time. The populist faith in the government is supreme, observed one of the earliest students of the movement in 1893. The government is all-powerful, and it ought to be all-willing. When a populist debtor is approached by a creditor, His reply is actually often in these words, I can't pay the debt until the government gives me relief. This intervention or saving grace of the government is a personal influence to him, a thing of life. What shall minister to a mind diseased like the populists? Only constitutional remedies. Yes, ordinary working class people once demanded that government get bigger and take over vast chunks of the economy. That was what American liberalism was all about 
once upon a time, and it started with populism. Authoritarianism is a grave danger that always attends the rise of populism, modern-day scholars assure us. The menace of authoritarian populists is one of the important themes in Yasha Monk's book, The People vs. Democracy. Harvard political scientist Stephen Levitsky, meanwhile, argues that populists weaken democracies by, quote, undermining the norms that sustain them, unquote thus raising the specter of authoritarianism. When populists win elections, they often assault democratic institutions, he warns in his best-selling book, How Democracies Die. Now, there is no doubt that Donald Trump is a norm-violating would-be autocrat, and attributing his authoritarianism to his populism draws on the long-running scholarly tendency to find that virtually all working-class movements are tyrannies in waiting. If the original 1890s populists were authoritarians, however, they were some of history's most ineffectual tyrants. Discipline was always poor in the People's Party. The organization could never shake what the historian Charles Postel calls its nonpartisan and anti-party origins. It started splitting into factions soon after it got going. The Pops were even lousy at selling out. After endorsing the Democratic presidential candidate in 1896, they were unable to convince the Democrats to reciprocate and accept the populist choice for the vice presidency. Then, the Pops and their Sunday school hero William Jennings Bryan were torn to pieces in one of the most brutal demonstrations of military-style politics ever seen in this country, a coldly efficient electoral massacre organized by William McKinley and Mark Hanna, the tycoon warlord of the Republican Party. The GOP is estimated to have outspent the Democrat populist campaign by 20 or 30 to 1 that year. To this day, by one standard of measurement, the Republican effort of 1896 still holds the record for the most expensive presidential campaign of all time. To study that famous contest and announce that the populists were the authoritarian team in the match would be a pants-on-fire outrage. In one of the more distorted charges, Virtually everyone who writes on the subject nowadays agrees that populism is anti-pluralist, by which they mean that it is racist or sexist or discriminatory in some other way. The source of this sin is said to be populism's love of the people, a concept that always supposedly excludes big parts of the population for being inauthentic or ethnically different. Populism's hatred for the elite, meanwhile, is thought to be merely a fig leaf for this ugly intolerance. Something like this is true in today's world. The leader of the Republican Party denounces elitists in what he calls the global power structure and also sets nativist hearts a-thumping with his promises of a wall along the Mexican border. And so, liberal intellectuals conclude, the two must be connected. Movements that criticize elites in the name of the people are by definition opposed to the colorful mosaic of complex modern societies. 
Intolerance is encoded in populism's very DNA. It's a funny thing, though. The example of populism once inspired intellectuals as they went about attacking racism. C. Van Woodward, the legendary historian of the American South, writes in his memoirs that he was drawn to the subject of populism as a young man because it compelled reconsideration of the racist shibboleths of the South's Democratic Party elite. Progress, prosperity, peace, consensus, white solidarity, black contentment. The young Woodward meant to shatter these stupid, stifling complacencies. And when he discovered the South's populist past as a graduate student in the 1930s, he thought he had found the weapon with which to do so. This is because attacking racist shibboleths was something that certain populist leaders famously did during the movement's brief career. The South, in the 1890s, was filled with poor farmers, both white and black, and keeping these two groups at each other's throats was virtually the entire point of the region's traditional politics. A generation of white solidarity indoctrination, as Woodward called it in his classic Origins of the New South, ensured poverty for both groups, but unchallenged power for the bourbon democratic elite. Populism's strategy for taking on the region's one-party system, as Woodward described it, was to organize, quote, a political union between white and Negro farmers and laborers within the South, unquote, a shocking affront, both to racist tradition and to the interests of the local moneyed class. The Pops, Woodward continued, ridiculed the cliches of reconciliation and white solidarity. The bolder among them challenged the cult of racism with the doctrine of common action among farmers and workers of both races. The very existence of the third party was, of course, a challenge to the one-party system as well as to white solidarity. In 1892, the populist leader Tom Watson of Georgia declared in a national magazine that, quote, the People's Party will settle the race question by addressing the common economic interests of black and white farmers. Watson then spoke to those farmers directly, quote, you are kept apart that you may be separately fleeced of your earnings. You are made to hate each other because upon that hatred is rested the keystone of the arch of financial despotism which enslaves you both. You are deceived and blinded that you may not see how this race antagonism perpetuates a monetary system which beggars both. This is not to say that white Southern populists were racial liberals or that they practiced what they preached. They weren't and they didn't. What they did do, however, was defy the Bourbon Democrats of the South, for whom white solidarity and the suppression of African Americans were the monolithic first principles of political consciousness. Populism's very existence was an attack on these doctrines. At times, the People's Party appeared to be making progress towards its stated ideal of class-based political action across the color line. Because I don't want to forget the moment where I just, uh, I disagreed. And this is a disagreement that I generally have with 
every the fuck body, really. <laughs> like, there really is no political leaning or ideology where I, and I'm not saying every single person, but like from these groups of ideas where I haven't heard this, where it's yeah. like the black and white people are at each other's throats, as he just said. Yeah. Ain't nobody black at no one white's throat. Nigga, a 17-year-old white man just mobbed up on motherfuckers with an AR-15 and got his blast on in the name of Blue Lives. Yeah. Where has that happened where white people were protesting someone and someone black was like, I'm finna put in work. (laughs) Nigga, what? I mean, George Zimmerman is still alive. Like, the closest to that was, um... The nigga in Seattle that um, hit the folks with the car, the lights. I don't know if I think I may have done that a morning wine cellar without you. I don't know if you saw that story. I saw that one, yeah. Yeah, like I guess you, you, we, we've got that one. Well, we do have the guy who was it was like the military. Was it like Dorner or something? Ah, uh, Christopher Dorner, California. Yeah, we, I mean we have him. We got that one. Okay, so uh, that is <laughs> five hundred years. We got the shoe. I get. I, uh-oh, what, one more from Theo? Oh, boy from, oh, oh boy from Dallas did that, too, when that, that Black Lives Matter, he, he blew the cops up. Oh, that's oh, right. Oh, I remember that. That was when I got I got a Facebook 30-day ban, like, right before that happened. <laughs> yes. And I was like, mother, I have so many things to say about that, and I got a 30-day ban, like, hours before it happened. So, I mean, so we have two. Uh, Nat Turner? Yes, Nat Turner. He was out there. Do you know how many, like, he literally overthrew white supremacy. They had to reestablish it. <laughs> they did. Well, I mean, Martin Luther King also, you know, ended slavery or ended racism and shit, so. Martin Luther King did end racism. He did. Yeah. Uh, and, and then Huey P. Newton ended racism. <laughs> and then Al Sharpton ended racism. Uh-huh. And then Jesse Jackson ended racism. But and then you, Obama ended racism. And now Kamala's going to end racism. That's right. We it, it we needed an Indian cop with a with a light-skinned Jamaican father to, <laughs> to end it. Like, I think it's actually going to be over this time. Yeah. But then if we end racism, <laughs> Aren't we? Aren't we engaging in cancel culture? Oh, don't just cancel wow. racism. Don't just cancel racism. <laughs> you can't just cancel white supremacy. Oh man. Um, yeah, I think like actually, what's like so fascinating to me about this book in general is how I, I think I said it last time was uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Is so much of it is the shit we're still seeing. Right. So we have like the media elites essentially being like, no, things that are good for you are actually bad for you. You don't need universal health care. You don't need living wages. And the people are like, we really want this shit. And it's super interesting that he made the point that um, a lot of this populism shit is like assumed to be fucking automatically like racist or authoritarian or whatever, like because of Donald Trump. But it's really ignoring that it's sort of like a projection type of thing. Right. Because they're saying like, you know, uh, populism is racist or populism is sexist. And it's like, no, sexism is actually not having universal health care. So we have the highest rates of uh, maternal deaths, like right during childbirth. We don't have women who can access prenatal care. That's actually fucking sexist, right? And we're talking about racism and it's like, no, racism is black people who can't fucking afford to go to the doctor and die early 
from pre-existing conditions that they never had treated. That's actually fucking racist. Like, Medicare for all is not racist. Not letting black people access medical care, that's fucking racist. <laughs> you know, and it's like, we're still making the, and this is from what, like the late 1800s, early 1900s, we're still making these same fucking arguments, and it's still the same fucking, like, rich people with their gatekeepers in the media who are like, no, you guys don't actually need a, a better standard of living. Better mm. things aren't possible. Better things are actually bad for you. Ah. So, yeah. Uh, like, uh, you just made me think of, like, uh, like they'll say, uh, oh, you can't decriminalize sex work because then they're just going to be doing it everywhere. Let me tell you something about people doing it everywhere. I've seen people fucking in public. They were not sex workers. It was fireball whiskey and people <laughs> behaving as they do. All right. I've yes. seen, I've never seen sex workers having sex doing their job in public because it's illegal and right. the clients want their private business to be private. Yep. The fuck? Yeah, it's that type of shit where we'll just be like, oh, well, it's sexist or, oh, it's racist or, oh, it's this. And it's like, no, actually, the way we currently live is racist and sexist and ableist and classist and all those things because people can't afford shit. People can't fucking, you know what I mean? It's just, it's just so frustrating. Yeah. It's so frustrating. I just, I just sum it all up in one word. It's an atrocity. It is an atrocity. Yes. Atrocious. Atrocious. As one might say. <laughs> yeah, so, like, racism ain't gonna go nowhere. So give me my populism so I can be called a nigger with more money in my pocket. Right. Well, I mean, wasn't that what people were saying, like, when Bernie was running, where they were like, well, Medicare for all won't solve racism. No, but maybe we'll live longer and we can fight it better if we have fucking health care. How about that? Well, says niggas like Imani Gandhi and Elon James White, where their biggest problem is which hoverboard they take to brunch. Well, I mean, Imani Gandhi was the one who was, was it, like, evicting people from their houses as a lawyer and then, like, said that she needed the job because she had a, um, a health condition and needed the health insurance. So, nigga, you were willing to let people, like, you were literally evicting people because you needed health insurance, but now you're going to tell us, niggas, that we don't fucking need health insurance? Nigga, are you serious right now? Wow. Yeah. Like, Imani wow. Gandhi was literally canceling people from their houses. Cancel culture. Cancel culture. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're not even talking about wow. the book. Nigga, we're just podcasting. This may be like, yeah, again, like, I'm telling you right now, if I stumbled on this podcast, I'd listen to it too. These <laughs> niggas is wildin'. All right, and and uh, Theo Loco, what I will do, your decibels are low, so in post, I'm going to go back and edit, and I'm going to increase the volume on yours so that folks will be able to hear you in the archive. Right on. All right, I'm going to go ahead and... I, I got to run I gotta run and go to work anyway, so but uh, uh, thank you for having me, and uh, see how folks around. Oh, he's right, canceling we'll us. The... <laughs> Theo's participating in cancel culture. All right, stay work. safe, please. All right, peace. All right. Stay cool. All right. So let's, uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, just mute. Instead of all microphones, we're just going to mute two microphones and uh, and get back to some Thomas Frank, The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism. We are 13 minutes from the close. So this will be the last segment we do for this installment of Punk Ass Book Jockeys Wine Cellar Book Club. Charles Postel reminds us that the marchers of Coxey's army deliberately violated segregated norms and that they were often helped along the road to Washington by black churches. In some southern states, the Pops struck fusion deals with local Republicans, the party to which many blacks were still loyal. By this device, for example, 
the Pops and the Republicans were able to defeat the Democratic Party of North Carolina and take over the government of that state for several years. Poverty has few distinctions among its victims, observed Hamlin Garland in an 1897 novel set amidst the rise of populism. Describing a protest of Kansas farmers, he wrote, quote, the Negro stood close beside his white brother in adversity, and there was a certain relation and resemblance in their stiffened walk, poor clothing, and dumb, imploring, empty hands, unquote. The spectacle, Garland continued, was something tremendous, something far-reaching. The movement it represented had the majesty, if not the volcanic energy, of the rise of the peasants of the Vendée. The Colored Farmers Alliance was the name of the group that organized black farmers alongside the whites-only Southern Farmers Alliance. Leaders from the Colored Alliance were essential in launching the People's Party. In some respects, they were well ahead of their white brethren in calling for a third party. But black populism, as it is now called, was ultimately a fruitless effort. Everywhere in the South, the Pops hit the wall of violence and vote fraud that blocked the progress of anyone who challenged white solidarity. When the new party made its debut in Southern elections in 1892, black voters were attacked and a number of them were murdered, a direct reflection, according to a recent study of black populism, of, quote, the political threat posed to the Democratic Party by the coalition of black and independent white voters. Violence of this kind continued here and there across the South until populism was completely vanquished. Nor was the commitment to equality professed by many white populists truly sincere. Some of them turned out to be just as committed to white supremacy as were the Southern Democrats they meant to defy. Many others thought racism and segregation were grounded in science. And later on, once populism had begun to weaken, the same Tom Watson who wrote such admirable words in 1892 reemerged as one of the nation's most notorious racists, producing, according to the historian Woodward, a stream of, quote, tirades against his one-time allies of the Negro race that were matchless in their malevolence, unquote. The point here is not some precise accounting of the populists' record on race. Summary, they meant well but didn't deliver. The critical thing to understand for present purposes is that the populists were not the great villains of the era's racist system. That dishonor went to the movement's arch enemies in the Southern Democratic Party, leaders who were absolutely clear about their commitment to white supremacy. The modern-day association of populism with anti-pluralism misses the historical target in several other crucial ways. For example, the Pops were the only party of their time to feature women in positions of leadership. In Kansas, the movement was singularly identified with the outrageous adventures of one Mary Elizabeth Lees, a dynamic orator who traveled around the state in 1890 damning Republican politicians and, according to legend, advising her audiences to raise less corn and more hell. A quieter, more executive role was played in that same state by the journalist Annie L. Diggs, 
whom a Kansas City newspaper once called the unqualified dictator of the Kansas populists, the first woman boss in American politics. Again, not all populists supported women's suffrage, but enough of them did to secure women the right to vote in several of the Western states where the party was strong. On the question of immigration, which was just as controversial then as it is today, the People's Party was of two minds. Its 1892 Omaha platform, like the platforms of the two major parties, opposed pauper immigration on the grounds that it, quote, crowds out our wage earners. The man the party chose as its presidential candidate, however, was a forthright supporter of open immigration, demanding in stormy populist style, are we still an asylum for the oppressed of all nations, or are we about to become a policeman for the monarchs and despots of the old world, a despicable international slave catcher under a worldwide fugitive slave law, engaged in the business of arresting and returning to their cruel taskmasters, the poor slaves who are fleeing hither to become citizens and to escape from hopeless conditions? Toward immigrants themselves, the People's Party was remarkably open. A granular investigation of the attitudes of Kansas populace toward immigrants found precisely the opposite of what present-day theorists insist is always the case with populism. Kansas in the 1890s was a state filled with just-arrived people, and the populists competed vigorously for their votes. Populist officeholders, meanwhile, came from Ireland, Germany, Sweden, and so on. As it happens, there was an anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic hate group at work in the 1890s. But it wasn't called populism. It was called the American Protective Association. And the political organization through which it preferred to do its work was that norm-defending organization known as the Republican Party. Here is how the populists of Kansas regarded the APA as laid down in a resolution adopted nearly unanimously, according to the historian who discovered it, at the party's state convention in 1894. Resolved that the People's Party, as its name implies, is the party of the people, and hence the enemy of oppression and tyranny in every form, and we do most emphatically condemn such conduct as unchristian, un-American, and as totally opposed to the spirit of the Constitution of our country, and we pledge our best efforts to defeat such organizations and to protect, as far as we are able, every individual of every nationality, religious creed, and political belief in his sacred right to worship God according to the dictates of his own conscience. This is curious, is it not? So many denunciations of populism for its anti-pluralism, and yet here are the populists themselves loudly attacking intolerance and anti-pluralism. What makes populism truly dangerous, our modern-day anti-populist experts concur, is that it refuses to acknowledge the hierarchy of meritocratic achievement. In its deep regard for the wisdom of the common person, it rejects more qualified leaders, which is to say it rejects them, the expert class. The election of Trump, with its implicit rebuff of the Ivy League approach of the Obama years, inflated this particular fear into a kind of national nightmare. A man of remarkable ignorance about our system of government had been placed in charge of that system. 
A cartoon in The New Yorker captured the absurdity with a scene of airline passengers in a populist mutiny of their own. These smug pilots have lost touch with regular passengers like us, bellows one of them. Who thinks I should fly the plane? If the elites go down, we're all in trouble, warned a 2017 headline in the Boston Globe. David Brooks informed readers of the New York Times that populism is the word we use to describe the hatred of excellence by the mediocre. Tom Nichols, a professor at the Naval War College, announced in Foreign Affairs that America lost faith in expertise due to a psychological syndrome in which stupid people are unaware of their own limitations, while fine scholarly people are peer-reviewed and know how to avoid confirmation bias. For good measure, he equated populism with the celebration of ignorance. Understanding recent history as a showdown between peer-reviewed expertise and mass ignorance is at the core of the anti-populist tradition. I kind of want to massively ignorize my foot up David Brooks's ass. Yes, that, that's <laughs> like, fair. That's fair. I swear to fuck, because, like, again, folks, I'm a heavy podcast listener. I think I said that on a previous episode, though, not this episode. And uh, I one of those podcasts I listen to is PBS NewsHour. I know it's probably a television show, too. but it when is. But when you podcast something, it makes it convenient for a person that's active and moving about. And every week, I have to hear David Brooks run his fucking mouth... And I don't really like Drift Glass of the Professional Left program, but uh, J- D- but uh, Gr- Drift Glass hits David Brooks hard, you know, from from a leftist critique. It's actually pretty constructive if you ever see Drift Glass going at Brooks. It's almost like that's his thing, like 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 dead up, like in blogger world. Yeah. Like if you flex on David Brooks, like people will be like. That's kind of Drift Glass's thing. Or Mr. Electro is his blog. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, um, but yeah, I, because I remember listening to Drift Glass talk about David Brooks, but I don't read the New York Times. Right. You know, I like, I read whatever local newspaper is where I live and whatever I see on the internet that's interesting. Yeah. So I don't read the New York Times. I don't read the LA Times. I don't, what is it, Chicago Tribune? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't read the Chicago Tribune. You know, I, I live out here. You know, like the close, I go like the Daily Herald is a little bit more, you know, they hit the suburban shit more, which is where we are, you know, and when I move to Michigan, I'll read whatever the local paper is where I am. But like, I, I thought that Driftglass was exaggerating <laughs> till I heard him on PBS and then what Frank said right there. And they, but yeah, that's that way of talking down and, and on some level, like intra-racially, you get that shit with the um with the black liberals and the black conservatives because yeah, quite sure. frankly the black conservatives with which typically get misconstrued as or lumped in with hoteps they are kind of ignorant in general but they know something's wrong they're yeah. black and they know they dealt with racism right they know that there's some classism afoot but like the black liberals just be like oh you're just all fucking uh it, you know like they they want to lord over them. It's that ivory tower shit. Mm-hmm. And like me, I'm coastal. I'm from Washington state. 
And then I lived in Florida for the majority of my adulthood. I'm very coastal. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm aware of why people in the Midwest and areas like that see you as coastal elites. Yeah. You fucking ivory tower motherfuckers. Fuck you. Yeah. And it's not because I think that I live out here, so therefore now I'm a farmer and you only eat because I get, I'm making subsidized government corn for you. No. Like, there's farms on the coast too, geniuses. All right, mm-hmm. those people like they would eat. They eat just fine. They don't literally need the Midwest farming yeah. for the entire fucking continent to eat. I yeah. don't know if you knew that, especially <laughs> if they're coastal. I don't know if you know about the ocean, but like there's fish and shit in there. There are. There <laughs> All right, are. so the coast are eating just fine, but there's also an assholeism to it. Yeah, you know, and like you look like a lot of that MSNBC shit, especially the evening shit, is shot out of New York. Right, like Rachel Maddow drives from um, Connecticut to New York to record her program. Yeah. Uh, Chris Hayes rides his bicycle from his uh, from his crib to the studio in New York. Mm-hmm. They're cold. They're literally coastal elites. Folks on this program have heard me refer to cats like Sam Cedar as the pompous left. He's from New York and is a part of Brooklyn gentrification. Yeah. Coastal elite. David Pakman, um, who has gone full vote blue no matter who. David Pakman is literally the only person I've seen in my life who is an example of that, that bullshit myth of you get more conservative as you get older. Because I heard him podcasting in his mid-20s. And he's a little younger than me now, going into his mid-30s. And he is straight up vote blue no matter who, full-on bootlicker. And he's always been um, an Israel zealot, Mm -hmm. 100%. He hates Palestine, you know. And um, uh, they're they're coastal elites because he's... um, he, he is a, of immigration, right? Spanish is his first language because yeah. a lot of Jewish folks that fled, they ended up in places like Venezuela. So uh, so Spanish is his first language, but he's been here since he was eight years old out of uh, Boston, Massachusetts. But then also as his podcast made more money, guess what he did? Became Sam Cedar's neighbor as a part of Brooklyn gentrification yeah. as a coastal elite and never mentioned that. And then he went back to Boston and... Yeah, fuck you motherfuckers. Mm-hmm. And after a while, again, it just comes back to, it's like, you know what? I'm so damn ignorant. I might as well just act on it and just beat the shit out of you. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, we fair. We do get tired of it. I'm almost 40, and it's like so much of my life is just going, being stolen from me by capitalist exploitation. Mm-hmm. And all you have for me is to say that populism means I'm a damn fool. Right. Fuck you. That's yeah. self-interest. Mm-hmm. Just like how you being against me is your self-interest in the context of seeing it as a zero-sum game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I said it during the last segment, but a lot of this book is really just, you know, again, the more things change, the more they stay the same, where it's really just, you know, um, the ruling class and their gatekeepers who are like, no, 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 we know better than you. And, you know, but I mean, we see evidence that they don't like all the time, not just like shitty policies they put out or shitty policies that the media defends. But that shit like um, like when they did like the food stamp challenge, right? And, like they couldn't fucking make it. And, and then like, they bought like two lemons and an onion. Oh god, that was fucking Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah, she <laughs> bought like fucking like eight fresh limes. Like, what the fuck <laughs> are you doing with your food stamp money? But no, I mean it's that shit. Or like you know, right now with COVID, when they didn't want to uh, extend the um, like the unemployment benefits and give out another stimulus check, where they're like, well, why isn't you know this little bit of money enough? And it's like y'all make fucking thousands of dollars an hour. 
right? When we're talking about, you know, like these CEOs and shit. Fucking senators make what was it like over like 120,000 is like the starting salary or some shit like that? Uh, I think um, Congress is, uh, fuck, I think it's 143,000. 143, okay. And like they're making that much, but then they're telling people who make 10 bucks an hour, you don't actually need a better wage, just get a different job. Or, you know, they're telling people in poverty, like, oh, you don't need another stimulus check. And it's like, we actually fucking do. And then when people get mad about it, it's like, oh, well, you're, be- oh, 174,000. 174, well, <laughs> yeah, I had to check my chickity check myself. 174,000 a year. But yeah, so they're making $170,000 a year. And actually more than that, because they get fucking stipends when they're on these fucking boards and committees and shit. Um, you know, to tell people who make 12 bucks an hour that they're being greedy for wanting a better life. See, and, like, this is where I'm all disgusting and nuanced. Ah, damn it. So now I am being a nuanced leftist. God Mm. damn it. But, uh, fucking, like, I'm not surprised that AOC got a taste for the boot and calls Nancy Mama Bear. Remember, like, let's see, nigga, we're lefties. Mm -hmm. We have long memories. Do not be a lefty with a short memory. Mm -hmm. Remember the headlines. AOC can't afford an apartment to start her new job in dc mm-hmm. but since she got a few of them checks <gasps> mama bear mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah she endorsed sanders at the joint but like that's a stunt that's a good it's a hot twitter stunt that's why i didn't cover it myself yeah. that's not that's gonna get a mention and it's not gonna get coverage i'm not gonna spend 20 minutes on that yeah. when they gave her 60 seconds to do it and it's like and it was fruitless anyway what was it gonna do like he doesn't have the super delegates right which is just their electoral college. Yeah. Yeah, so fucking, yeah, I, I get why she's got a taste for the boot. She never saw a check like that before. Fuck yeah. Yeah, it's nice to get a little bit of money in your pocket. But, you know, it always reminds me of that one picture. I think it was, like, an anti-capitalist picture from, like, the early 1900s where it was, like, the layers of capitalism, right? So it was, like, the people on the bottom holding everything up and they were just, like, you know, fucking starving and dying and shit. And then it was, like, the next layer up and the next layer up. And the people at the top were, like, you don't need to eat. We'll eat for you. Like, shit like that. And I was like, that's really fucking accurate, though. It's like, people on the people out here are fucking dying in these streets. And they're like, no, we can't raise the federal minimum wage. Jeff Bezos might have to pay more taxes. Uh, fucking Bill Gates told us not to. Like, fucking, what the fuck? And again, workers, we are Atlas. Let's shrug. WineCellarMedia.com. And if you like when workers shrug, <laughs> you can <laughs> go to patreon.com slash fund and turn that into a whole ass 81 subscribers doing it big. I personally call it Ochenta Uno myself. That's how I talk because of where I worked for the past four years. And uh, and then also there's the tip jars, paypal.me slash phoenixandwilliam. Uh, and uh, thank, uh, my niggas um, uh, Jan Loco and Laura Loco uh, Laura Loco hit up the Venmo. Thank you, my nigga. You. Big time. Just save it. Yeah, because this move is going to be a hit. Oh, <laughs> and, uh, fuck yeah. But yeah, we're, we're going to make it happen, you know. Uh, and we, we damn sure like the support the program. Uh, the, let's keep it going for another eight years, which, oh, God, if the program goes another eight years, <laughs> I'll be 45. If it goes another eight years, we might actually make like $2,000 a month. Hey. <laughs> But in, but in which case, guess what though? Two thousand a month. I'm doing it full time. That me that means, Mary. You get morning wine cellar, evening wine cellar, yes. fucking book clubs. Yes. Like, cause that's mostly what I'll do. I don't have friends. Okay, I'm not hanging out. 
I'm not likable and I don't like motherfuckers. Okay? Like, I'm gonna be in the crib podcasting. That's your fucking selling point? I'm not likable and I don't like people? Give me money so I can podcast? What the fuck? I didn't say people. I said motherfuckers. (laughs) See? You tried to cancel my motherfuckers. Calm down, Shaft. I'm Shaft? I'm not Shaft. That's Samuel L. Jackson and and some Isaac nigga. Isaac Hayes? I think so. Was Shaft? Did you did you see they made a new one? Well, it's a couple years old now, but they made a new one with both them niggas in it. Oh so no! So it's like, is the grandfather the father? And now Shaft has a kid who's like, I don't know, and is like, just got out of college. Oh wait, was that um the Wayne's kid? I don't know. Wait, let, let's look that up live on the air for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wait, uh, sh- ah, shit. Uh, okay, so Shaft movie. I'm gonna look this up on the on the googly. And because I should be looking at Yahoo, I'm giving Google a unnecessary click. My bad, folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shaft, you said Sam Jackson, yeah, Isaac, and I'm just gonna put and because I don't fucking know who's okay. the other cat. Uh, yeah. So who do we now? Oh. Where is this? Oh, you saw 2000. something. Two thousand. Is that the one? Wait. Is that the one? No, two thousand. That's the that's the one from when I was a teenager. I think you I mean this two thousand nineteen. Okay. And Richard Roundtree. Oh, and Jesse T. Usher. That must be the young one. Oh. Okay. Oh no. So it wasn't the Wayne's brother kid. No. Well, that's all right. I think the Wayne's are kind of okay. Like okay. as as a like literally as a family, they are kind of a comedy empire. They are. They're, they're fine. Yeah, they're chilling. They got big fucking comedy money. All right. So that'll be that. Uh, wine cellar media dot to the kizom uh, and thank you for holding it the fuck down and hanging out with us in book club yes ma'am uh, somebody just sent me a story I'm not going to read the whole thing the headline is enough Hurricane Laura topples confederate monument uh, in Lake Charles weeks after city votes to keep it up <gasps> It's it got hurricane canceled it got hurricane canceled nigga I'm about to retweet it <laughs> with that caption and then take a screenshot and put it on Facebook because that is funny. See how you can make funny jokes without being a fucking transphobe? Whoop-a-doop-a-doo. Thank you for tuning in. Don't sing to the audience. You can't sing, nigga. Nigga, you you took advantage of the fact that I couldn't hit the stop button fast enough. God damn, you can't trust these light-skinned niggas. Every single freckle is a trick they have up their sleeve. <laughs>